Hey everyone and welcome to the 54th edition of DF Direct Weekly. This is indeed our weekly show where we discuss the latest gaming and, and technology news, of course. Uh, let's get straight to it. Joining me, as usual, John Linneman. Rich, I'm here. Got Bomb Jack in the back. It's all good. <laughs> and of course, there's so much to discuss this week uh, uh, post-GDC. It's got to be Alex Battaglia. Yeah, after fighting an existential battle with the GDC website, I've survived. I'm here. I'm ready to talk. But without further ado, let's get straight on into our first topic. Okay, this one isn't GDC related, uh, nullifying my entire info, but here we go anyway. Big, <laughs> big story. Uh, the Witcher, the next Witcher has been confirmed. CD Projekt Red uh, dropped the news this week. And uh, with it, uh, absolutely no details whatsoever about the game uh, or release dates or what they called the development time frame. But there was a technological bombshell, which is that the Red Engine is no more. It's going to be used for Cyberpunk 2077 expansions. But beyond that, for their next game, and presumably the ones beyond that, uh, it's going to be Unreal Engine 5, which has been a point of contention, for sure. Uh, some degree of sadness, some degree of the realities of engine development. Um, Alex, where do, you, where do you stand on this one? Um, I mean, my initial gut reaction was highly negative just because I really love the Red Engine. I, it had issues over time, like it's never been perfect, but what is? Um, but, you know, I was saddened to see another giant of the non-middleware engine space because, you know, uh, you see that across a lot of Eastern Europe, a lot of we use our own engine, we use our own tech. That's what we're really proud of uh, to see that disappear. And I think that was the general reaction on Twitter that I saw from other developers. But like you're saying, Rich, there are realities here. One, if you're hiring new people in this day and age, there's an onboarding process to get them to use your own tools. Um, and they may be processes that are not available in English language. They may be processes that are like tied to a certain person in your organization that can leave and things like that. So there's a lot of dependencies there. And using Unreal Engine 5 uh, would make it so that there's one available documentation in, in a lot of languages and then everyone can train with it even before they're hired. So you can get a lot more people. You have a much more flexible uh, working and hiring conditions. And I think Honestly, other than the idea that maybe John will want to mention, uh, I think that's probably one of the primary reasons why they're doing this is, you know, Red Engine was probably great uh, for what they were creating and every time they, you know, refreshed it and changed it for each release. But at this point, they're going to be building titles in the far-flung future with different people than, that are working there now, and they need as many people as quickly as possible. So it's probably an efficiency thing at the end of the day. I can see that. Other things that, that I'd imagine influ influence this decision. Uh, firstly, there is the the need to distance themselves from cyberpunk, however possible, whether that's, you know, fair or not. But I assume management is essentially looking for a scapegoat, if you will. Like, hey, uh, you know, why was this game a mess? And it's easy to point fingers at this technology and sort of shift over to something else, essentially. Um, so I could see that playing a potential role in that decision. Beyond that, when, you know, given the state of, of Cyberpunk when it launched and all the hoops they had to jump through, I'd imagine there was a lot of uh, last-minute features and, and techniques and things being done to get the game out the door that probably weren't tracked as well as they could have been, you know? Like, I could imagine documentation after the project not being great, I could imagine a lot of things being implemented that were very specific to what they were trying to do in Cyberpunk 
things like that creating issues that might make it tough to jump directly into a new project. But I still lament the fact that they're switching because I do think um, I, there is a flavor lost when you switch to different engines. Absolutely. People can say all day that that's not the case, but it absolutely is the case. And we have hundreds of, <laughs> of pieces of evidence of this too, right? It's not just like saying that from nothing. But at the same time, you know, I do see a positive in that uh, this is a big studio still, despite the cyberpunk thing. The Witcher is a big IP. Uh, we know what it is. It's a big open world game now. Uh, it's he heavy on foliage, I'd imagine. Something that Unreal Engine 5 isn't exactly well suited to at the moment. And I feel like the needs of this game could actually help drive Unreal Engine forward in ways that help other developers as well, and Epic, because it's like, now they got to figure out how do we implement this stuff? Not to say that they're not already working on it, of course, but this this is sort of a way to ensure that these types of features for this type of open world game end up in Unreal Engine 5 and can be shippable. You know, again, the foliage thing, obviously Nanite doesn't support that currently, you can't do like masked materials or anything like that. And also Nanite itself doesn't seem to be really good for like sparse geometry. Like if you have a bunch of like grass blades and leaves, it doesn't really work for that. And there's also no like way to like bend, bend the mesh or anything in a way currently, right? Like you can't like have like touch bending or some kind of physical interaction or movement currently. Um, so you have to use another technique for it. I assume that they will find that technique. I have every <laughs> uh, hope and I have faith in them to figure something out for this because they need to, right? It's really important for what they're doing. So that is a positive thing for sure. So I don't know. I mean, that's why I'm completely mixed on it. Like I'm sad to see this custom tech going away. And I also worry about, you know, like what's, What's the point of studying low-level graphical rendering techniques and stuff, right? If you no longer have a chance at working anywhere but Epic long-term. And we know there's a lot of inefficiencies in Unreal Engine. The The code base it ships with is, is massive. Uh, I've heard developers say things regarding uh, just the overall bloat of the engine. The whole one-size-fits-all approach has positives, but it also has negatives that go with it. Um, there's things you can do with custom engines that can be very, very lightweight, really fast and really specific to exactly what you want to achieve. And I think like, I don't think we're going to get games like Doom Eternal or Metro Exodus, the enhanced version, you know, that kind of performance level out of Unreal on the consoles from most developers, right? I just don't see it. And I think that whatever those teams are doing next generation will probably be super fast and look amazing, and it's not to say it won't look amazing in Unreal, but there is that agility there that you can do. So it's it's a give and take. I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I'm rambling a lot. <laughs> I like what you said, though. Yeah, I think uh, well, from my perspective, there's been a definite shift. If you look on Twitter, that you get to see, you get to follow the key rendering engineers, right? And there's been what you might call a brain drain, which is to say that. A lot of the leading lights in uh, technical development in game in the gaming space have basically gravitated to one of three employers: Epic Games, Unity, and Nvidia. And um, obviously, these guys have got the kind of buying power that even I suspect a developer like CD Projekt Red would have uh, trouble matching. So you know, we've we've got this situation now where. 
uh, key talent is gravitating to one of those three companies. Maybe I've missed another one. I don't know, but I don't think Intel? so. It seems to be those. Sounds about right. Intel, yeah. Intel would be another one. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good good point. It's kind of a bit more behind yeah. the scenes. Yeah, true. It's not quite as, uh, as <laughs> glamorous. Yeah. As glamorous, yes. But yes, um, but there is definitely a case where you know we're seeing uh, key talent moving, you know, gravitating towards these big companies and away from independent developers. And this is really challenging, right? So, so what do you end up doing? You know, I mean, could CD Projekt Red have independently developed Lumen and Nanite? Absolutely, given time. But, you know, it's already in a shippable form of sorts with Unreal Engine 5. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of like the landscape as things stand right now. It's, it's really, really challenging. Epic had all that time to develop those things for something that wasn't a shippable product, right? Like it eventually will be used in them, but you know, when CD Projekt's working on like Cyberpunk, you know, the, the whole time the, the features have to be designed to be in something shippable. And the other thing, of course, is that Epic can afford to bring in this talent and could afford to spend years developing this because, you know, it's it's an engine that's going to be monetized across dozens of games, whereas the Red Engine, it's like one game every five years, seemingly. And um, there is the other thing which was coming up on Twitter from um, ex-CDPR developers, which is that there is no Red Engine that's a continuous development from The Witcher 2 onwards. Uh, There's discussion that the engine was essentially scrapped and redone from scratch for each project for, for The Witcher 3 and then for Cyberpunk 2077, which paints the picture of, you know, again, something that that's not sustainable, I suspect, when there are options like Unreal Engine out there. Um, I agree with you, John, that there is this danger that we're going to get this sort of homogenization of uh, games looking very, very similar. And to be fair, we have seen that across the generations since, you know, UE3 onwards, right? Um, But at the same time, you know, um, this is being positioned as not as um, CDPR as licensees, but as strategic partners, whatever that may be. But it says to me that Epic has, you know, wants the input of CDPR in actually making UE5 capable of a game like The Witcher, which I don't think it is at the moment, right? UE5 isn't finished. There are key um, elements of the engine that are still in development. And as you say, you know, uh, we've seen um, three demos now of um, Nanite and Lumen, and um, all of them have uh, have not exactly been strong on aspects like foliage, which you absolutely must have in, in a game like The Witcher. So maybe it, maybe it's the case that this project will actually um, see about a comprehensive addressing of these deficiencies in UE5 because they have to be addressed for this project. You remember with the Matrix demo, how, how they did the car deformation, how they were using Nanite for the cars until the collision, and then it's like they had to switch into those different zones. Like, they had to come up with sort of borderline hacky but interesting techniques to overcome those limitations. And again, uh, it takes performance. It did take yeah, performance. There's a, <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I want to talk about. Like, I saw a lot of I posted on Reset Era about this when it came out. I was like, I'm not happy with this news. Uh, And a lot of people, I think, coming from the console versions of um, Cyberpunk 2077 were like, wow, this is amazing news. You know, UE5 looks great and runs great. Um, But then I think about, like, these UE5 demos that we've seen so far. And honestly, they don't 
run so awesome when you think about it. Well, what they're um, doing they're, is pretty cool, but I, yeah. It's I, cool, but like, yeah, you know, like they're not actually proof of concept of real games because in a real game, if it dropped to 20 FPS, we would we would slag on it super hard, you know? Yeah, the, Ma- the Matrix demo in some ways runs similar to Cyberpunk on the consoles. On the last-gen consoles, last <laughs> yeah. Consoles. Uh, so, like, that's the thing. Like, I, I like those demos for the, from the visual and our artistic and research uh, perspective, but for a real game, it's going to need a much more robust performance than what we've seen out of UE5 so far. Um, you know, something like that we've seen out of the, probably we're going to see it um, from, um, what's the name of the developer? The Coalition. I think we're gonna, that's where we're going to see this kind of UE5 performance that we really like uh, for the first time. Uh, I think I'm slightly thinking that uh, now with both The Witcher 3 and Cyberpunk 2077 that consoles were kind of like the death of this, this engine for them. With you know, The Witcher 3, the release then had issues on consoles. They uh, kind of very notoriously downgraded their uh, visual aspects of the game pre-release uh, as a result of trying to target console hardware uh, as part of that. And then, you know, with C- Cyberpunk 2077, uh, I, I'm pretty sure the game on PC was already in a pretty good state for a long time. And then they have this death march, essentially, to get it running on Xbox One, poor Xbox One. Um, <laughs> uh, and then that just, it just didn't work out. Uh, so I feel bad for them. I feel bad for the team. I definitely imagine some of the programmers who made this engine their baby over the last five, six years of CP, uh, CP2077 uh, are a little bit sad about their all their work going away, but so it is. This is the dark side of consoles, Alex. I, I still maintain that this is exactly, it's not everything, but this is partially what happened with Crytek and Crisis going forward. Like, I like Crisis 2 and 3, but I feel like the move to console there was kind of the beginning of the end for, for up to their current state, and, they're, you know, they're recovering now, but... Um, you know, that need to, to create these console games rather than building something just for the PC, which is something you used to be able to do. And these days it's not so possible unless it's a genre that's very specific PC, right? Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I revisited Alex's 2020 video where he looked back at The Witcher 2 and um, you can definitely see that this was a game that if it was a multi-platform development would never have shipped in that state. It would never have looked, it would not have looked as good. And you can kind of look at the Xbox 360 downport of The Witcher 2 to, you know, to envisage the kind of cuts they would have had to have made. And typically what we've seen in the multi-platform development space is that it's actually very rare for a PC port to have a huge amount of extra features compared to the console versions um, the console versions are really downports of a much better PC version. The PC versions are essentially um, improved versions of the console builds, right? Which are two very different things. And uh, yeah, you know, go back, play The Witcher 2 now. It holds up. It looks brilliant. It's a game of its time for sure, but it is it is a beautiful game. And I don't think it would have been had it have been, a, you know, a PS360 slash PC endeavor. And I think maybe that is the issue with Cyberpunk 2077, where I still think that there was that kind of mentality of pushing the boundaries. And, you know, let's not forget that we named um, Cyberpunk 2077 as our best graphics of 2020, and deservedly so, right? It's just that the discourse surrounding the game had been defined by the last gen versions, which, which were not good. 
So yeah, I mean, I, I think we got to pour one out for the uh, for the red engine here because you know clearly we're not going to see a game built in that style again from CD Projekt Red, uh, which is which is a shame. But at the same time, um, I can see the reasons why it was made, and it's probably going to make development a lot smoother for CDPR going forward. Um, but there is still, I think, a big open question about. Um, uh, you know, if they're going to tap into Nanite and Lumen, uh, how they're going to overcome the challenges that are facing the, the engine as it stands at the moment. <laughs> One more thing I do want to point out, though, is a Returnal from Housemark, built on UE4, but it's still very much a Housemark game. Mm-hmm. And, and I wouldn't really view that as, un, as, a, as a sort of archetypal Unreal Engine 4 game. I don't know if you guys agree with that. You can recognize things in it, but yeah, they still... They're an example of a company that switched from custom engine to Unreal quite successfully. Ghostwire Tokyo did this too, though maybe successfully visually, I guess. Performance-wise, there's a whole other uh, uh, can of worms there. Uh, I just, I guess to talk about like uniqueness of visuals, because that was a really good point, and John mentioned it as well earlier. But uh, one of the reasons why I'm sad about it is because Nanite and Lumen, you know, they have limitations of their own and they have, uh, you know, best practices about how like assets are created and how scenes are generated. And that does lead to a homogenization of looks that we saw similar into the UE3 era, but it's a lot better now because the graphics are just so much more realistic. The things being simulated are much better. But one of the reasons why I like, uh, you know, like your, um, like your Insomniac and, and you know all these other smaller engines uh, from the studio, is that they can create with their own artistic set of tools and own technologies and different ideas. Namely, the different ideas, the different implementation can lead to, I would say, just incredibly different looking worlds, even though maybe some of the base technology has similarities. Um, so that's one thing I'm, af- I'm afraid we'll see if everyone's switching over to UE5 that will be like, oh, I recognize that bloom. I've seen that bloom six million times already. Oh, I recognize that 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 error in gra- graphics. Like I can nowadays when I look at a game and I see the way like there's like dithering, I'm like, oh, that's UE4. That's UE4. Well, I think the issue from my perspective is that if those key issues with UE5 are not addressed, we're going to be seeing a lot of uh, a lot of canyons, <laughs> a lot of a lot of deserts, a lot of cities. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that that would be slightly problematic. They have to address yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on. Second news topic we're going to be discussing this week is uh, there appears to be movement on PlayStation Five in addressing its uh, somewhat lamentable lack of support for key HDMI two point one features. Um, a new firmware dropped this week with um, enhancements to party support and whatnot. But there's been some interesting movements on HDMI two point one support. Um, the system now appears to support auto low latency modes, which is to say that it will automatically shift into game mode uh, for lower latency response for gaming, which is uh, on, on the surface a good thing. Um, and there's also been an announcement, um, an official announcement, finally, uh, it, complete with a menu uh, being shown, that uh, variable refresh rate monitors and displays and TVs and whatnot are now going to be supported. Well, I say now, uh, in the months ahead, I think is uh, is is the comment there. Um, this is this is all on the face of it, really good news, right, John? Yeah. So there's two sides to this. First of all, you mentioned auto low latency mode, and I kind of want to get this out of the way first because um, I want to flag this because the way that Sony's implemented this is fundamentally. Not good for me and some people. Uh, essentially, 
this is now forced. If your TV supports it, it's going to trigger auto low latency mode. And you say, but John, that's awesome, right? That's good. No. On Xbox, you can disable this. And there's a good reason for that. Because as I've said many, 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 many times, I admit I love using black frame insertion, right? You keep hearing it on here, but I'm serious. I need it for so many games because it really helps with that awful persistence blur you get with flat panel displays. Hate it. So I, I use that. Problem is when you enable ALLM, it means that you can't use features like that, uh, at least on all of the LG OLEDs and some other sets as well that I've seen. As soon as you enable ALLM, you can't turn on features like black frame insertion. So right now to use it on PS5, I actually have to go into the TV settings, turn off the whole uh, HDMI 2.1 extra features on that specific port, which also disables VRR. And you can't use VRR with black frame insertion either normally. Um, and so it is still possible to work around, but it requires much more of a workaround in terms of going into menus and making changes on your TV side which is really annoying, I think. It's much slower. Whereas on the Xbox, you can actually just go into the settings, you can turn off VRR and ALLM, and you do that, and you, all your features are restored. And that's what I want. All we need is a toggle for this feature in the PS5 settings menu. Make it a toggle. Simple. Please do that, Sony. Like, seriously. Like, otherwise, you, you've messed it up. <laughs> uh, but then, uh, VRR is interesting, because thus far this gen, VRR, I would argue, hasn't actually been that useful in the sense that most games have been hitting their targets. So that's great, actually. Um, because the only reason you ever want to use VRR is when your frame rate is constantly dipping under the target frame rate, right? Or you have a mode where it's like aiming extra high. Uh, and until now, like, the number of games that really needed that was very low, but we've seen some big games now suddenly release where the frame rate is less than optimal. Uh, Elden Ring is obviously the big one. I can't play it on PS5, but I was able to enjoy it a lot on Xbox because of VRR. So it basically saved the day there. Uh, Ghostwire Tokyo, it's PS5 and PC only. It's a mess in terms of frame rate. It's very inconsistent. Every, every single mode is inconsistent. There's no way to get a stable frame rate in that game. VRR would save the day. It's not available yet. So the fact that we're starting to see games like this means it's good that it's coming. And what what I'm wondering about now is the implementation. Because we saw that you can turn it on as automatic, and there's a, an unsupported game option. So what I think this means is that you can probably force VRR across every game if you want, but it's sort of a get-out-of-jail card get out of jail free card for Sony to basically say, if it doesn't work with this game, we can point to this and say it's unsupported, you know, sorry. You know what I mean? Because there are some games that don't work correctly with VRR, like Neo 2, even on the PC, like it just does not work at all with G-Sync and everything. It's, it's not possible. Uh, Halo Infinite doesn't work correctly with VRR. Uh, games like that. So it's kind of a, I assume that's what they're doing. But the fact that it can be implemented at the game level is actually kind of interesting because this this theoretically means now that developers could put in VRR-specific options in the game, right? So, like, you don't have to have an uncapped frame rate mode above 60 or something for non-VR displays, but you can turn that on if you have one. You know what I mean? So it would trigger that mode specifically 
if you have such a display and then now all of a sudden it uncaps the frame rate or something and allows it to go up to 120. Uh, like Ghostwire Tokyo would have been a good example of where VRR would make sense in the options menu because it has these weird high frame rate modes that are useless right now without it. Um, so it would have been great there. So, I mean, I'm just kind of, it's just kind of say that it's good that it's coming, even though it's quite late, but we haven't really needed it until recently. And now we're starting to see the cracks in these consoles and more games are shipping with performance issues, which is concerning. Uh, I don't want them to use this as a crutch, but it is useful when there's really no other option, right? I don't know, John. I think there are some uh, good examples of where it would be useful in the here and now beyond Elden Ring. I think any game that's targeting 120 hertz, it's quite rare that you get a locked 120 hertz. I don't know. That they've been pretty good, though, by and large, right? Like, and But you're right. It would be useful there. I guess another one which springs to mind is Deathloop with ray tracing in, uh, enabled. Oh, that one um, with the... Yeah, that one's a But it, that has one. incorrect yeah. frame pacing. And right. we, it's no, it's unlocked, I believe. Oh, is isn't it, Alex? But it was. Oh, that's the no, that's the one with the improper frame pacing. But maybe they added an unlock, and I'm not. I, uh, I, and I, just I, don't, I think it's capped at thirty with. Uh, I think it's but, frame yeah, but it will also help like with um, uh, you know, with low frame rate compensation. A lot of these issues that we've had with games with poor frame rate locks will also be helped. No, um, no, it doesn't. It doesn't is, fix it. I can confirm it that. Doesn't? No, it does not solve oh, no. this issue. If if the game has a problem with that, it's going to show up in VRR, unfortunately. Oh, what a what a damn shame! Yeah, it's it's <laughs> stupid. I only enable VRR on these games when there's actual issues because I would prefer to use black frame insertion, especially for 120 hertz. Like Alex, you've seen me play the Halo Master Chief Collection, right? And we were looking at it with BFI on, and like the clarity you get in motion is just unbelievable, and. Even though it does drop frames here and there, I think it's worth just dealing with those occasional bits of judder versus having VRR on and like losing that clarity. So it's really hit or miss in terms of where I like to use it. It's going to vary per individual, I think. Some people can probably just leave it on all the time. Um, I don't know. This, this whole, the state of displays is in such a weird spot that it, I get kind of irritated by it because i feel like people are wanting very different things from what my eyes want and nobody's really paying attention to motion persistence outside of vr developers right like flat panel blur sucks it's so bad like i don't understand why people are okay with it it looks terrible i think they're okay with it because they haven't seen the alternative um that's that's the thing right i mean we've been we've we've been putting up with uh bad motion uh handling on displays since the PS360 era, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. People don't know any better. <laughs> they don't. And it's really difficult for us to evangelize it because, you know, how do you evangelize can't show it? it? There's no oh way to show gosh, it. Oh my gosh, you can barely show it. <laughs> That's the problem, right? Um, I've got a question here from AFC Steve, which ties into this story. Hi, DF team. VRR has been shown on PS5 hardware. Great news. Will you be doing video testing some games where you've mentioned this game could have really used VRR? I think Elden Ring is an obvious first one, but I think even going back as far as DMC5 and various other games that sorely missed the feature will be interesting to see. Uh, I think there's, well, obviously we'll be doing a video on it, but again, we're kind of facing a challenge here where you cannot capture a VRR signal. No, but we can so we mention need to it. come up with a, yeah, I mean, yeah, we can. Sure. We do already. It's, as a video. But we've know. got to get content out there that does our best to show what, you know, what is actually happening there. And I still think we need to have some kind of display 
which will actually output frame times for individual frames rather than having those uh, on-screen monitors that, that we have at the moment, which are kind of um, which are kind of potentially inaccurate once low frame rate compensation comes in. So we, we have made some inquiries with uh, display manufacturers and hopefully there will be a solution there, but no guarantees because it's kind of, we don't make displays, so it's kind of out of our hands. But yes, obviously we will be covering it. And, you know, even if we can't show you VRR, even if it can't be, you know, backed up with data, we can at least provide our impressions, which I think will be valuable. Uh, so let's move on to the next story. Okay, next news story. It's GDC week. There's been a bunch of really interesting technical presentations. And I guess the flagship one, um, well, flagship in the sense that we really wanted to know the most about it, <laughs> was AMD's FSR 2.0 presentation, where we're going to get some more information on how AMD's temporal reconstruction uh, technique actually works. And um, I caught some of the presentation. I'm not sure I've learned a great deal more than what we could have surmised from uh, previous information. But Alex, did anything catch your eye there? I guess uh, you're right. There was not actually as much learned as probably one would arguably want to know. Uh, they were actually very forthright. They showed a lot of the internals. Uh, but the thing is, like the, like the innovation part of it is not really as forward. You know, it's not like the core part of the presentation like it has been for DLSS or XCSS. Um, so it's mainly focused on how do you integrate this into your engine and how does um, FSR 2.0, which uses tried and true you know, technology that we've seen ever since 2016, as Rich has pointed out uh, just to me this early this morning, um, how they try and avoid some issues that you see with usual temporal uh, solutions. And that's what it, the primary focus of the presentation was actually on, like disocclusion artifacts. How do they handle them? Um, and they really wanted to emphasize uh, as a part of this presentation that it is significantly different than FSR 1.0, which they, which is very fun, you know, like after the fact, it is very interesting. Uh, maybe, I don't know what the term is. It's gratifying to see that you know, there was a lot of hubbub when FSR 1.0 came about, about its positives, about the fact that it is so easy to implement. Um, but at the same time, its ease of implementation was about the fact that it lacked quality, which is something we talked a lot about. Um, and that's exactly what AMD <laughs> described in their presentation, which was uh, just makes you wonder uh, what's going on exactly in the media uh, at, what, at moments like that. But Alex, before you continue, aside, I mean, you got, you got to bask in this moment. I mean, everything yeah, you it said. Is, it is a little bit. It is a little bit gratifying. You were right. I mean, and they even yeah. admitted it. So it's cool to see. But I think um, some key takeaways from the presentation about what we should expect from FSR 2.0 titles is that they specifically call out the integration time period. Um, it is a temporal anti-aliasing upsampling solution. And they say like the integration time for a game that is already trying to target these type of technologies through XCSS, DLSS, or their own solution is about three days. So it's very quick. There's a library, you just inject it in. Uh, they do have some uh, parameters in there that um, for performance reasons, because it is slightly expensive, it's more expensive. It's about the cost of like a really good TAA in a game engine. So there are some tuning things you can do per architecture and things like that, but three days. But then, you know, for any other engine out there that doesn't 
have these technologies, the integration time could be uh, decidedly longer, uh, which is much like we saw with DLSS. It was probably much more involved to get DLSS working in Neo 2 than it was uh, to get it working in, say, I don't know, Frostbite games, for example. Um, that was another really key part of the presentation. Uh, another thing that I thought was kind of interesting was the, the modes that they're uh, going to have there. There is no ultra quality mode, uh, so they've dumped that. And there's a quality, a balanced, a performance, and an, even an ultra performance mode like we see in NVIDIA sides. I think uh, some of the scaling multipliers may be different depending upon whether you're 1080p, 1440p, or 4K. So it may not line up 100% always with the NVIDIA stuff, but that means that they're at least competent, uh, confident enough in their solution that they're going to even allow such a crazy multiplier uh, for resolution scaling, which I found uh, reassuring, uh, which is uh, you know good. I, I just really want to see this happening in games now. I think it's going to happen soon enough because you know it's already been integrated. Uh, from what I understand, in at least two games, um, uh, you know, Deathloop, and then I forget what the other one was called. Uh, but the, you know, the, we're going to have to wait till quarter two at some point to actually see these things, which is funny because just the other day, before we recorded this, uh, we got frantic messages on Twitter. Oh my gosh, they updated God of War to have FSR 2.0. I loaded up in the morning. My first impressions were, gosh. This is not very good. I hope this is an FSR 2.0. Look at all these issues. Yeah. And I sent John and Rich a video like, about what? it. <laughs> what? Um, but then we, you know, behind the scenes, we ask all the questions. And no, it is not FSR uh, 2.0. Thankfully, it is FSR 1.0. Uh, that was a string error in the UI. And I presume it's because they're actually working on FSR 2.0 for God of War PC, mm -hmm. uh, which is nice um, to see. And I, I can't wait to check that out when the time comes. Yeah. So, uh, so, Alex, we actually got a question here from Techno Dan. Uh, following the announcement of FSR 2.0, do you think the technology could be used on consoles as they are all AMD based and upscaling to 4K from a resolution? And upscaling to 4K from a lower resolution is already common. More specifically, could FSR 2.0 be used to mitigate the shimmering issues users are reporting on Horizon Forbidden West's performance mode? Keep up the good work. So here's the thing, Alex. This is kind of like the power of branding, right? I mean, um, FSR is uh, inextricably linked with AMD, and people want to see these brand new AMD features deployed elsewhere because, you know, there's a lot of hullabaloo, for want of a better word, hullabaloo <laughs> like that word. <laughs> so, surrounding them. And we think, hey, this is awesome. Yeah. It's going to take things forward. But I think the, the thing that people are missing here is that FSR 2.0 is essentially taking what has been done before in the console space for years and bringing it to PC in a way that is kind of open source and available to everyone. Um, so can you tackle this di this question directly? Because obviously FSR 2.0 could be used in Horizon Forbidden West, but obviously Guerrilla Games, they pretty much, well, they pretty much invented temporal, <laughs> temporal uh, super sampling in Killzone Shadowfall, right? Yeah, so I think I get messages like this all the time. Um, it's kind of insane how often a message when everything about FSR comes out about like, what about Xbox and FSR? What about PlayStation? What about Switch and FSR? My goodness. Um, I get all these you, questions. You could have and, FSR on Switch. Yeah, why not? Let's do that. Um, is, isn't one of the, a game use FSR 1.0 on Switch? Probably. Um, either way, the whole, the whole point is it's 
that is not at all interesting. I'm going to be just like frank with you. Like that is not as interesting as it is in the PC space because Rich said like this technology has already been in existence on consoles for a long time. Developers can already integrate it. The only thing that this will add is maybe an option for those who don't have it at all before. It, what it will not do, for example, is I see a lot of this will make um, ray tracing more viable on console. And it's like, well, no, it'll, it'll just make the results be a little bit higher res looking, but it won't make games all of a sudden start supporting more ray tracing features or something like that. This, this is, this is not different than what we've seen before in one, in that sense. It will not make the Xbox Series X GPU so much better or something like that, or the PlayStation 5 GPU because developers like, you know, Insomniac, your Guerrilla Games, uh, so many uh, Unreal Engine 4, already Unreal Engine 5 with TSR. Um, it's already going to be doing these kind of things anyways, and developers most definitely should be tapping into them. And if they're not, well, that's honestly the developer's fault a little bit. Well, it gives, it gives them an option, right? If they can compare their own internal uh, temporal supersampling solutions to FSR, and if FSR is better, they can just plug that in instead because fundamentally the inputs required are, are going to be similar, right? For sure, um, it, it does. There are some there are some specific requirements um, for FSR, like it requires inverse depth and things like that. So there could be some issues with getting it into some engines, uh, but I actually don't think it's going to be a big deal. I, it is an alternative, but at the same time, if you're already doing this kind of thing, um, it may not be worth it to like spend the resources to investigate whether you should use FSR 2.0 uh, because you're already doing it and you're already doing a really good job of it, probably, hopefully. Um, that's, I, I would say, different, though, than the case with XESS, which there were also presentations about XESS at GDC, and um, there were two uh, about integrations in games. Uh, well, yeah, two that were specifically about integrations in the games. Uh, Hitman uh, is going to be getting a patch with it, presumably when there's ARC hardware, Intel ARC hardware out there. Um, and then there was the Rift Breaker, which is also getting it. And that, those were really, really well done presentations. And we learned there about XESS, uh, some things that are different than we've seen with DLSS are, for example, that there's going to be an ultra quality mode from the, from the get-go. Uh, it is not a native TAA mode, uh, where it's not native resolution, but it's slightly below native resolution. Uh, I think it was like, maybe it'd be like something like 1800p-ish or so, uh, as like from the 4K scaler. And that's interesting because uh, that's something I've always wanted out of DLSS from the get-go, is that there's a way to have it scaled to native resolution or close to native resolution, uh, higher than 1440p or higher than that quality mode, because sometimes a game already runs really well, and DLSS is a bit superfluous, but you want that nice anti-aliasing, because it's usually better than most games DAA. Um, so that was really nice to see. Uh, uh, another really cool aspect of that is that they did talk about how they're trying to separate it from FSR interestingly enough, and FSR 2.0. Like, as part of the presentation, they really want to focus on that they're trying to innovate with this machine learning approach. And they pointed out very specific things, like they showed it versus TAAU and versus XESS multiple times in presentations to show that it's achieving better, more stable results with less ghosting and all these other things. This is really a marketing issue, Alex, where it feels like, you know, Solutions like XESS and DLSS are just automatically getting lumped in with FSR. And that's not to knock what they're doing with FSR 2.0, but it's fundamentally kind of different. Yeah, it is pretty, it is going to be pretty different. And I'm really excited to do, um, 
you know, comparisons when the time comes. I'm, I'm really happy, like I said earlier, I, I'm happy that FSR 2.0 exists at all because it means we're finally going to get competent upsampling in games on PC, at least, you know, that. That's like the bottom line. But I'm also really curious to see how it holds up in motion, which is, you know, the problem always with temporal solutions. Like, how do they actually hold up when the camera moves or when an object moves? So uh, XESS, DLSS, FSR 2.0 comparisons, I'm going to do them all. Um, and another part of that uh, um, presentation from Intel um, that doesn't actually have to do with XESS was they described their uh, hardware ray tracing in complete depth in a really cool way. Um, they essentially, uh, they're doing a very different tactic than AMD, closer to NVIDIA, but also its own thing. Uh, so it will be really interesting to see when one of those cards come out. I'm gonna do a, a much like I did with um, the RX 6800 XT versus RTX 3080 ray tracing video. I really wanna do one with Intel and put it against uh, NVIDIA and AMD in different scenarios because their architecture actually seems really ray tracing friendly um, in ways that are not evidenced on NVIDIA or even AMD because they've like limited their SIMD width on purpose. So, you know, 32 lanes uh, or warp, whatever, on. Uh, AMD and um, NVIDIA right now, or previously with 64, and they're using eight. So it is much, much more narrow. Oh, and wow, they're using and eight a lot lanes? of other things. Yeah, just eight lanes. Oh, and, okay. and it's like much more narrow. And they're doing a lot to prevent stalling of that uh, pipeline. A lot of things to make any hit shaders run better. So for things like transparency, smoke, and all these things being ray traced. And in general, it was really funny because they're, they're the architecture is so different than the AMD one that they're like actively in their presentation saying like ignore they're like saying ignore AMD's optimization guidelines for our architecture please like please don't use them uh, because interestingly most of their hardware and driver and development stack is about automating things away from the developer it is a bit it's more black box uh, in in some ways than even Nvidia is. Um, because they think they can do a lot of these things better than manual scheduling and manual sorting and all these other things. So, gosh, it's going to be so interesting when Intel architecture comes out and I can put it to the test because I actually do think it, in some ways it could be even better than NVIDIA's, which I would love to see. So I'm excited. This is really exciting, especially because, you know, now that ray tracing has been around for a few years in the real time sense, it's like they've had a chance to like examine the way the problem is solved elsewhere and they haven't launched a product yet, so they're developing it with that knowledge. And it sounds like they're going to come up with something, hopefully, that is rather efficient. Uh, and this this could become a really good competitor in the GPU space that, that we need, I'd say. But Alex, do you think there'll be a hullabaloo? <laughs> <laughs> there, will, there will be so many hullabaloos. Um, I'm excited <laughs> to see what happens with like legacy and modern games coming out because... Uh, original ray tracing games were done with DXR 1.0, and then you know AMD comes out, consoles come out, DXR 1.1. Maybe we'll get more preference there because you got to get it to run on consoles, right? And that's what will definitely run better there. But Intel is saying, don't use DXR 1.1, please don't use DXR 1.1. So uh, I'm really curious to see what happens, and there could be controversy as always. There's always drama. So all right, Alex, I have a question for you. Theoretical question from Technir Dan. I'm sorry, Technir Dan, I have to do this. 
Following the Check announcement of XESS, do you think the technology could be used on consoles? More specifically, yeah, could XESS... <laughs> it's a good question. So XESS, um, they do, uh, in multiple presentations, point out how it's going to run best on Intel because it's going to use their XMX engines, which are like tensor cores uh, for Intel side of things. And it doesn't get that acceleration on NVIDIA or AMD. There's just no cross API for those kind of things. So it'll use DP4A instructions, which are supported on some architectures. NVIDIA supports them, I think, since Pascal. Uh, AMD supports them on, like, I forget, some older GCN hardware, I think, Isn't it maybe. Vega? Vega. And it's also an RDNA 2, uh, but it's not an RDNA 1. And I don't think actually PlayStation 5 supports them. Uh, from what I've read and heard. So XESS is one of those things where technically, I think it can run on Xbox Series consoles just out of the gate, uh, but I don't know if it runs on PlayStation 5. I didn't see the presentations, Alex, but would I be uh, remiss in assuming that there were no performance numbers comparing DP4A to their solution? They, they showed DP4A on Intel hardware versus their solution. Um, okay, and what was the performance differential? I mean, these graphs were not real graphs. They were, they were like, they were histograms with like boxes yeah, of certain sizes that, that were all distorted. So it did look like the runtime, if these box sizes could be <laughs> taken as a word, uh, there were like the box was twice as large with DP4A. So it could make some modes not as practical. It could make quality mode less practical, for example, on certain architectures, uh, and. Uh, but it could make performance mode still worth it to use is one of the things. Okay, that's interesting. Alex, though, tell, as a hardcore user of the Fury X, am I screwed? Can I use XESS? No. Unfortunately, no. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. The I end is nigh. Uh, I did see an eBay listing for a Fury X the other day for a pit pitiful sum, let's just say. I what don't know who's going to uh, buy that. What, what about the evil commando? Oh, you know. <laughs> it, was, it probably runs on the evil commando, let's be honest. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Okay, so our next topic here, um, Unity Engine. They've released this phenomenal-looking um, CG demo uh, called Enemies, all running in real time. Uh, I just don't know what to say. I was taken away, just blown away by the quality of the visuals here. Uh, Alex, what are the key things that stood out to you here? I mean, it's like a, almost like a wonderland of new rendering techniques here. And I think it looks incredible. But then again, they do have a history of putting out these great demos, which never seem to translate into games that look anything like it. Uh, what do you make of this one? I mean, it's phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah, it's phenomenal looking. I mean, just watch it. Audie's going to be scrolling some footage of enemies from Unity running on HDRP here. I personally think this is the best real-time character I've ever seen anywhere. It is just freaking amazing looking. Uh, there's a lot of things in this scene which point out the fact that it definitely is not going to... It, it, they said they're going to be targeting with this, that there are versions of it. This is running at DLSS quality mode, targeting 4K on an RTX 3090, running at 40 FPS, 30 FPS cap, essentially. So it is above 30 FPS on an RTX 3090. Uh, and they kind of like when um, UE5 was announced, they had like different modes for like, this is the PlayStation 5 Xbox Series X targeting mode. And then the Matrix Awakens demo came out and it used those. And they also did further optimization specific for Xbox Series S. They are going to have modes like that for 
of this demo's quality level for Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5 and presumably Xbox Series S that will tune things down, resolutions down, and other things like that to make it run better there. And maybe we will see those demos in the day because I asked uh, one of the leads on Twitter, and yes, they are actually going to release this demo, which Unity really doesn't do. Uh, so that will be interesting whenever they release it. I don't know when that's going to be. But it does beg the question, like Rich said, uh, there's a lot of really cool things there. There's you know, ray traced uh, shadows, there's ray traced reflections, there's, a, there's ray traced ambient occlusion, there's a stupidly dense grid of probes that, the that it uses to make it look like RTGI uh, almost. Like, it's like probably like every three centimeters it looked like there was another probe. It was stupidly high, a dense grid of probes. Uh, and then of course the hair and all these other things. But this is running on Unity's HDRP and we have seen so very few titles running Unity HDRP, and of those, mo they are definitely most of these are not targeting like super high quality character models, super high dense geometry, all these other things. Like Unity games in the past have not targeted HDRP, and not the high feature set of HDRP. Usually, it's really really rare, and I think John could talk about this, but like there's a at Unity itself, there's just like a divide about what tech is de demoed and just uh, made for the engine versus what developers actually end up doing or have the ability to do, you know? Yeah, that seems to be a common complaint I hear talking to developers working in Unity is that because of the fact that really until now, Unity really hasn't focused on shipping a game of any sorts. Like, this is kind of a secret behind Epic's success, I think, is that they've always shipped games on their engines. Right now, obviously, they're focused on Fortnite, but it's a chance for them to roll out new features, new technologies. They have to test it and QA it for a live environment. They have to make sure this stuff is actually workable. And along the way, they run into issues that any other developer might also run into, which no doubt helps contribute to solving these problems. Uh, whereas a lot of Unity developers I've talked to have suggested that they sometimes, like... It's not that they don't get support from Unity, it's, it just feels like they're running up against problems that maybe haven't necessarily had a simple or obvious solution, and then they're not getting the help, and there's no examples of something that's shipped that solved this problem, and it just, it just makes it more difficult for them, right? Like, and... That's why I'm a little bit fascinated to see... I don't think it's the same thing, but you showed the other day, Unity put out that Gigaia thing or have they released it yet i don't uh i don't i haven't downloaded it yet i, don't, so I, I don't haven't know. actually so they're, they're doing this thing it's a it's a development thing. it's an in development playable sample um that's designed to sort of showcase unity's features in action in a game-like thing and it's not quite uh it's not the same as like really necessarily shipping a full game i'd say no fortnite uh, but yeah. i do need to look into this because to me at least it does between releasing the demo of enemies and then the, something like gigaya it does seem like unity is starting to focus on all right we need to get stuff out there in a way that can actually benefit people and i think mm -hmm. that's one of the big keys here because just showing what you can do with an engine is one thing but making it so that it's actually something that developers can play with and experience and and learn from and also unity has the knowledge of shipping stuff i think that's really important right because I mean, Epic does that already. Besides shipping Fortnite, of course, they've been releasing their demos. They put out that, uh, the, I guess, the second Valley of the Ancients or whatever it's called, Unreal Demo. Yeah, what is it? 
That, yeah, that is Valley of Ancients. Yeah, the first one was called Lumen in the Lab. Yeah, Lumen, exactly. Right? That's what it is. They're also yeah. going to be putting out something for Matrix, though obviously without the licensed Matrix property stuff, but like the city and all that. So that's going to be out mm -hmm. there. You know, so they're doing a lot to basically make it feasible for developers to look at this stuff and understand it. I think that's really important. And I hope that this marks a shift for Unity to finally get serious about this. Because it's pretty clear that their engine is very capable of super high-end rendering now. Uh, it's just, you know, we need to see it used in something. And I hope that happens. Because, like... I covered the Oddworld game last year, I guess, which I really liked, Soulstorm. It's a very nice-looking game. That's shipped on Unity. Uh, but they only used HDRP for the cutscenes, and the cutscenes were stored as video. So they were actually made in Unity, but they weren't real-time. And the game itself didn't use HDRP. So I thought that was a weird red flag about the state of that situation. You know what I mean? I think it is actually like, right. Is, yeah, is, like... is, I think we were talking about this is, is the Lego builder's journey. Is that the only game that's shipped with HDRP? Like is like the, I think, yeah, that, that is, I think uh, escape from Tarkov is another oh, yeah, example, from Tarkov. I think but I don't play I think it. Recompile as well. was HDRP. Oh, oh gosh. Okay. I forgot about that game's existence. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. So that, check it out. It's quite interesting. So we got okay. three games there. Okay. So that's good. There's something, um, I don't know. I I want to see Unity succeed as well here because we need multiple engines like this in the space, and Epic is absolutely dominating right now. I think, but uh, I I want to see Unity continue to grow as well and present good options, and I hope that they can do this. <laughs> wow, so many topics this week, um, but we're going to keep plowing on regardless. Now, this one is fascinating. As Legends of Zelda: Ocarina of Time has been a completely reverse reverse engineered rebuilt from scratch available to download now on pc you do still need to source a legitimate ocarina of time rom uh, there therefore you know they so can import those assets into the game um, but this is looking really really impressive just like uh, the super mario um, 64 port uh, john talk us through this one keep in mind that this is the first initial release to the public and a lot of stuff is still being worked on for instance the high frame rate stuff that is not currently implemented, as far as I know, uh, because it has to be done sort of on a per area basis. There's tweaks that must occur for this to work, but it's coming. It does have ultra wide, you know, widescreen support as well. Um, it can support mods. And I think based on what we saw with Super Mario 64 on the PC, I would, and knowing the popularity of Ocarina of Time, I think it's pretty oh obvious that we're gonna see a similar level of support for this including hopefully uh if dario is listening here some ray tracing <laughs> would be nice you know from Patrick, <laughs> yeah dario sama that, that, that would be great in this as well so you know i i think these are really cool because this kind of release is not something i think nintendo itself would do i mean it actually did remake this game curiously enough and it has its own unique look but it is cool yeah. to be able to revisit it this way and essentially give the community uh access to a platform to build upon because you know that just unleashes mod creators and such so uh, nintendo probably doesn't like this but i think the community <laughs> does <laughs> and uh, as always we should stress this is decompilations are 100 legal uh but the whole deal is you have to source your own um game content you have to source your own assets yeah. i think we should explain why it's legal um because you know a lot of people are going to be saying hey i can download ocarina of time and uh you know nintendo being uh, defrauded etc etc but the, the the nature of the beast is that essentially 
they have no access to the original source code. They have to go into the game, they have to completely deconstruct it, and then they reconstruct it with their own code, right? So although it is accomplishing the same job as the original game, it's not the same code. And the, and, uh, the assets that it needs to, to make it look like Zelda and run like Zelda, they have to be imported from um, a copy of the game that you must source from Nintendo. You know, that's, that's the way it works. So that's the reason why it's, it's was it like a clean room approach to, to reconstructing the game from scratch. So the download, the project itself is, is completely legal. How you get the data in the game, that's up to you. And that gets into the different area, but the people doing this project are not the ones handing that out basically. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you are downloading a version that's been fully compiled, that is illegal because it is incorporating Nintendo assets. Whereas the development team's work here is essentially um, a building block. One of the two building blocks that you need to make this, you need to source the official Nintendo release, which implies a purchase. So that's, that's the why it is legal. And it's why Nintendo hasn't taken action against the Super Mario port. And, um, and, Great, basically. <laughs> Anything else to add to this one? Definitely. Oh, yeah, we have to talk about this. Um, well, we're going to probably be doing a stream with uh, with the developers from this uh, at some point in the future. And, you know, uh, that should be awesome because it opens up us asking questions about decompilation projects that they want to work on in the future as also any of the other features and things they want to talk about. So look out for that. Audie, John, and I probably on that stream. Now let's move on to our final news topic. Wow, a lot of news topics this week. And it is the, the shock news <laughs> that Nintendo has updated uh, the Switch operating system, the Switch front end, to support folders. This is senses-shattering stuff. Oh, right? my yeah, God. It only folders. took, what, five years, I guess? Um, <laughs> well, I don't know what it is about this, but this, you know, like PS4 had folders, PS after a while, and then they launched PS5 and there's no folders. And it just, it feels like these features, I don't know, maybe, maybe they assume you have to build a library first because fundamentally the problem with Switch is that you, you end up with this library screen, it's just a wall of icons. And if you have a lot of Switch games, uh, it, it grows rapidly and it actually becomes kind of a pain to scroll through. Uh, and as a result, you know, this feature essentially allows you to better organize your games into a way that's actually easy to parse, I think. And that's... That's the key. It's nothing groundbreaking. We've seen this stuff before. It's just, it's a, it's a good PSA to let people know that they finally added this to the mix and it is a good thing. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> I don't it's think there's anything more to add to that. Really. We just, we're just waiting <laughs> I on, I, I, I don't, PS5 still does not have folders, right? I, I'm, I think I'm pretty, I don't know. I, don't I really don't think it does. So. Uh, and Xbox, I don't think really has folders either. It just has like a pinning system, but it's sorting is a little bit better, I think, in terms of the way it groups stuff. But now there's more native games out. It's starting to get a little busy as well. So, you know, it is. It is what it is. These these consoles are always changing. Okay, let's move on to our supporter Q&A. This is where um, backers of the Digital Foundry supporter program submit their questions for inclusion on the show. And uh, we pick the best and answer them. And, of course, if you are a backer of the supporter program, you get to see DF Direct weekly, weekly, uh, a couple of days ahead of everybody else. So it's a, it's a win all round. 
um, if you're a supporter, that is. Uh, but let's move on to our first question. If you didn't play any PC releases for a living, would you still buy a lot of games at launch? Or given the performance issues we often see with major PC titles, would you, generally speaking, wait a few months for games to be patched? That one is from Sloth. I'm going to go to you with this one, Alex. We often see in major PC titles, you know, it's not... I don't know how common it is because we're not looking at every release always on PC and we're not looking at all PC releases. So it's a little hard to say, but we definitely do tend to pick the ones that have problems. I think I've been really unlucky in that aspect. Um, uh, but in general here, <clears throat> would I still buy games at launch? I always, always read uh, what users are reporting in on. Uh, I don't pre-order games. I don't see the need to pre-order on PC. There's no physical copy to worry about arriving. Um, so I do always read about them and I do not usually buy games at launch unless they're smaller indie things um, where I know that there's only so much they can do technically with a game and I just kind of put up with it. Uh, so like an indie title, I will definitely buy at launch, but a AAA one, I see almost no reason to without reading about like how it's performing, what issues there are, and things like that. Probably not because, you know, I have that that barrier where I don't like to spend more than 30 bucks on a digital game. So, and I've stuck to that. <laughs> uh, so if I if I really want to own a game on day one, I, I, you know, I'll get a physical version on a console first. And then what often happens is that I, you know, later on it's like, oh, now it's on sale on the PC, get it on the PC for cheap. And then I replay it and it's enhanced and it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a fun chance to revisit a game and see it in a slightly different way. Uh, the only, you know, I would have been bummed out though, in some cases, like we're covering Ghostwire Tokyo and like if I had purchased that on PS5, it would have been kind of bummed out and I'd rather play it on PC. In which case, like when you get into that situation, what do you do if you don't have, if you, you know, it's, it's tricky. So... I guess, yeah, PC's weird I because of this. I, most people don't care, though. They're, they're, they're fine with these digital marketplaces. So I think from my perspective, um, when you get to a certain age, the question isn't whether you want to play these games, it's whether you've got the time to play them. My backlog is going back years now. So I don't have any particular, you know, if I look at, uh, there could be a game I really want to play, but if I see that there are performance issues, I'm quite happy to wait it out because my backlog is such that, um, you know, I'm never short of quality entertainment in the video gaming space. So that's, uh, you know, that's it's got to be something phenomenally good, game-changing to make me want to play on game one, on, on day one. But, you know, um, I actually think this is part of what makes digital foundries pc um coverage special is that you know there's a ton of really awesome pc um based tech channels out there on youtube um but none of them are actually concentrating on the quality of the gameplay experience as far as i can tell it's, it's, it seems to be the exception rather than the rule and um so yeah when alex is talking about you know going to see what the users are saying about it I think you know a lot of that is down to the fact that unlike like a graphics card review where there's a surfeit of quality data, there isn't for games, which I think is a bit disappointing. And um, yeah, so I think you know this is part of what sets our coverage apart. But yes, generally, 
I don't have any particular needs to be there on day one unless uh, unless it's something you know that I absolutely must play. But that's really difficult in a world where I've got a ton of really fantastic must play titles that I've not even touched yet. So yes, that's that's my answer to that one. Uh, let's move on to the next question from Fans Tech Girl. Given time and money, what one video or type of video would each of you want to create? I'm a huge fan of video game documentaries, so I'd love to see more of that type of thing, similar to the DF Retro content, but not constrained to retro. I want to travel around someday and do really exhaustive sort of documentary work on on developing classic games. Um, something like that. Uh, it's tough to do it because, you know, you just need the time and budget and, and all that to pull something like that off. But I really want to do like, if I had, if I had the time and the money, I'd really want to do like a serious, like film quality production, you know, get, get the time, get the, the equipment, the people I need to make it happen. Uh, just really go, go all out and do some truly lavish things. Cause right now, you know, I try my best at it, but obviously we have to build stuff in just a low amount of time. And, you know, we can't do all that. So I've always wanted to just push it, push up production to like a level that is normally not possible. Uh, but yeah, so that's, you know, that would be a dream thing to do someday. Maybe, but it would probably have to be something like funded separately to really pull it off, I think, because it doesn't really fit like a YouTube channel, right? Well, I'll tell you what, John, the recent um, DF Retro episode we did uh, about the GeForce 256 is a pretty big example of the fact that there's stories out there from uh, crucial parts in the development of video game technology that are not being told. Yeah, there's so much. Uh, exactly. Exactly. And if you look at um, on Twitter, there's a guy called Kevin Ed Edwards. He used to work for Software Creations. He's he's actually going through his old archives. Amazing showing, stuff. Yeah, oh showing gosh. some amazing stuff from the development of, of some really awesome projects from Software Creations, which were a really big developer back in the day. And um, this is all stuff that's, you know, it's there's, it just demonstrates that there's this wealth of untold stories out there and assets that should be shared with the world that are of historical value to, to gaming. That and you know, it's 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 all out there, hopefully. Question is how long is it going to be out there? No, we've kind of got to worry. get these yeah, we've got to get these stories documented and um and and these stories told. And that was yeah, that was one of the reasons why I really enjoyed the GeForce two five six um video because it was, you know, a guy who was there during a crucial time in the development PC gaming technology and PC gaming, basically revealing all, and um, that was actually shot in my lounge. And there were story, there were many stories that didn't make it to camera, uh, which which are just absolutely phenomenal. And you know there are key people and um, Phil from Nvidia who was in that <laughs> in that video. There are key people who sort of crop up throughout the history of game development, uh, almost like unsung heroes that have all of these stories to tell. So I'm, I'm fully on board with that. Yeah, see that, exactly. That would, that, that's great. Maybe someday we can, we can figure out a way to make this work. But I, I think that would be really cool to really document this stuff and get into the nitty gritty. It's a lot of these types of things you see that are beautifully shot and produced. But if you actually look at the information presented, it's very surface level, right? And I want to go deeper on this and get those stories out there and tell it in a beautiful way. So I mean, even the G5, uh, GeForce 256, we had to cut a lot. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> because uh, the interviews were like an hour and three quarters, oh, Phil, I think. Phil has so much to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there is, there is, I mean, that's awesome. Alex? There are a good couple. Um, there's some that are just less practical because I would need really good ins and content. Like, I really do want to look at Intel Larrabee, what happened, uh, what, what, um, what happened there, what it was promising, what happened to Intel's gaming initiative at that time. There are so incredibly cool things like enemy territory quake wars ray traced back then. There's a video you can find of it. It's running at 720p, maybe 20 to 30 FPS, but it was apparently running on Intel Larrabee and it's got like reflections. And I think all the primary lighting is done via like a primary ray trace. So that is pretty damn interesting and weird. Um, that's a crazy story, you know, project offset. I would really love to know what happened there. I've over the years, I've like, tested people on Twitter, like, and I send them a message. I'm like, would you ever want to talk about that? And they're like, meh, yeah, probably. Um, so that could be something that in the future, but I don't have, the, Intel Larrabee never came into existence. And the only thing you have of it are like really old videos in DivX format in like 480p, if at best. So, you know, like that's hard to talk about. The trick there then would be to find somebody who might, might have original assets for that stuff at least like at least higher quality videos uh, yeah like there that would be contacting uh, developers of enemy territory quake wars splash i'm damage. looking at the video um, of this i forgot about this it's been forever yeah but, oh my gosh it's um yeah it, it, that opens up all these other things because there was always uh you know like quake ray trace quake 2 ray trace quake 3 ray trace quake 4 ray trace and those were cpu ray tracers and this was like the first time we saw it like running in real time and really fast so those you know that'd be something i'd love to talk about um, I want to do a DX10 face-off, uh, uh, G8, G80, not G92, so not 8800GT, but 8800GTX versus R, what was it, RX2900 XT, I think it was the, the phrasing back then, R2900 XT. Like that. I can't recall off the top Yeah, of but like, it was such a crazy period because... You know, there were so many expectations around both GPUs. One was delayed, one wasn't. One had to, you know, apparently there was so many manufacturing issues with the AMD or ATI card at that time. And then the games that came out, DX10, what the hell was that? You have like really cool things like, you know, Company of Heroes, Lost Planet, Hellgate London, all these weird, you know, weird time capsule of things happening there. I would love to do a face off of those two. I don't own a 2900 XT right now, but I saw a variation of the GPU, a, a Crossfire X version of the GPU on an eBay, so I may grab that soon. Um, and you know, there's there's a lot of things. There's games on this this wall over here that I want to look at. Homeworld, Homeworld 2, maybe uh, in some way. And I've always uh, just I've had I love Relic games. I would love to do a dedicated video on just like Relic games. I think they're one of my favorite. Uh, game makers out there. So those are things that always come to my mind, but uh, this year when it slows down, well, because it inevitably slows down, I'm, I'm surprised how packed the beginning of this year has been so far. I think you guys maybe too. Um, uh, so when it slows down, this is when these dream projects start, you know, I can start working on the background maybe and things like that. So we'll see. Uh, so yeah, my answer to this question, well, the, the easy answer to that is uh, basically, I'd like to be able to make the videos that I kind of want to make now, but don't have time, um, which is which is a many. Well, hopefully we'll be able to sort something out about that in due course. Um, but I'm going to put to you, uh, you might have heard me guffawing during Alex's uh, 
uh, response to that. It wasn't in response to uh, Alex. It was uh, a new concept that I've got, which is essentially uh, it would be a new form of video. It's called. Uh, it's, it's based on Wonder Woman's Lasso of Truth. Right? <laughs> oh yeah. Where basically we get somebody like uh, you know uh, Mark Cerny or Phil Spencer. <laughs> in a chair with Wonder Woman's lasso of truth, and any question that I have to put to them, they have to answer I would truthfully. Love it. So you know, all of all of the sort of uh, stories that we've heard in the past, or all of the stories that have been hinted in the past, where we've never really got closure. Uh, you know, for example, the version of the Xbox One X that Phil uh, apparently uh, didn't okay but did okay the one later. I mean, what happened with that story? So Phil would be there, lasso of truth around him, and he'd have to tell us everything. Uh, you know, similarly, you know, we heard stories of PlayStation 4 coming out in 20... PlayStation 5, rather, coming out in 2019. Never happened, came out in 2020. What's the story? Was there a story there? Only with the lasso of truth will we, will we be able to find out exactly what happened. Watchdogs so, watch lasso of so truth. So unfortunately, my yeah. uh, type of video that I'd want to create is not actually possible because it relies on a fantasy object that only exists in the world of comics and motion pictures. But that is <laughs> what I would love to do. Love it. Um, let's, and with that, let's move on to the next question. Uh, this one from Modvin. Uh, in your discussions about the Switch 2, you've talked a lot about how it might target 4K visuals with technology like DLSS, but given that many Switch titles already struggle to hit 720p and your own findings about the cost of DLSS at higher resolutions, sharp intake of breath, does it really make much sense for Nintendo to target 4K even with reconstruction? Microsoft realized that 4K is an expensive luxury for many people, which is why the Series S mainly targets 1080p with occasional 1440p plus resolutions mixed in. Uh, I personally see Nintendo aiming more at the S in those terms. I'm curious to see what you think about it. I think, well, just straight off the bat, my impression is they're not targeting 4K. They're simply targeting a presentation that looks good on a 4K display or, or not objectionable, which I think Switch games do at the moment. I don't know what you make of that, John. Ultra performance DLSS, for instance, like the whole idea is that it would take a super low res image like 720p and make it look presentable at 4k and i think that's potentially the concept here is that dlss is strong enough that you know it's not going to look like dlss quality or anything but it will still be presentable on a 4k screen in a way that like a 720p game currently is not and given that we are it's not like all switch games are 720p either there's plenty that go above that already and if it's significantly more powerful hardware based on a more modern architecture and it supports DLSS, I feel like there's a lot of room there to sort of just, you know, put out something that actually works well on those target screens uh, in a way that we've not seen yet. And that's where the Series S kind of falls short and that it doesn't have a DLSS equivalent. With the Series S resolution targets, if it was actually capable of something like DLSS, uh, you would be seeing much better image quality, I think, given what it can do otherwise. I agree with all you're saying, ultra low performance mode, or that's what it's called, ultra performance mode, sorry, not ultra low performance mode. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that'd be the great. opposite. Um, that's the, that, but the switch to, yeah. Um, so, but I also think the, the the person's getting here at a bit. There is a cost, obviously, to, to bring that 720p up to 4K. Why not bring it up to 1440p and just like that instead and be happy with that instead? And, you know, that could be something that game developers do 
uh, in the eventuality of Switch 2, Switch Pro, Switch EX, whatever it's called, coming out. And um, I would have no problem with that. Uh, I guess I just really want to see DLSS on Switch and see games using it. And hopefully Nintendo pushing it in their own titles. Job just looked at the new Kirby game. And it's interesting to see that they are apparently interested in DLSS and working with NVIDIA because their, their games basically don't have anti-aliasing. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. so it is so it is an interesting turn of events for a Nintendo to say, uh, to say the least there. That's okay, funny because it would require uh, some major changes to that engine, right? Because yeah, probably, right? Are, are they even generating like motion vectors or anything like that? You know, like what's going on oh in there? Uh, yeah. I don't know, but you're right. That's, <laughs> that's funny. But like I said in that video, they were pioneers of the anti-aliasing on N64. They were one of the first to do it. <laughs> and like, even the, the, everybody always talked about like Dreamcast and Xbox and PS2, well not PS2 because it didn't, but Dreamcast especially having anti-aliasing and technically it could have done something, but like pretty much, pretty much no games used it. Maybe What one. games? Yeah. Do you know of any games in Dreamcast that I, use I've heard AA? people say that Omicron has anti-aliasing mm -hmm. on Dreamcast. I need to double check that. That game? Really? Of it all the games to have though. it. Wow. Um, okay. So. It was a PC port. Was it MSAA or SSAA? It would have been SSAA. Because it did Holy, not support then... MSAA, I don't believe. Okay. Wow. Uh, and I think it's the same situation on Xbox, where it was mostly not something that was supported. Uh, we did see, like, Bowder's Gate Dark Alliance on PS2 that was sort of, like, super sampled in a way, where they were kind of, like, doing, like, a 1280 widescreen. Uh, or every other frame was, like, you know, they were blending the two together to create that. So it was, like, two 640 frames or something. I don't know. It was very effective, though, but... On Switch, I don't know. We'll have to see, but I, I hope they actually do this, and I hope Nintendo re-embraces anti-aliasing again. Absolutely, yeah. I think it is fundamentally a tool that doesn't necessarily have 4K output as the as the end game, so to speak. I think it will be uh, for developers to choose what to do with it. And, um, yeah, ultimately it's just about, I think, making a... If you're going to have a docked experience, making it look less objectionable than it does on Switch at the moment. The next Switch, I would prefer to see a 720p screen again. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds controversial, but we're seeing with then. the Steam Deck. Yeah. Having that lower target means that you can at least hit that native res and potentially even do better with DLSS on every game. Whereas if you're doing a 1080p or higher screen, you're just you're back into upscaling land. And that's what we want to get out of. Next question. Now, I have a bit of a reputation for mispronouncing <laughs> names uh, from our supporters, for which I am constantly apologizing. So I'm apologizing in advance for this one. But uh, Tamer Eskander. I think it's Tamir Eskander. I think it's just the Tamir. It's like a Tamir. central, like central Asian Russian name. Yeah. Okay. Good. Maybe. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Sorry if I said it wrong. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, hi, awesome DF crew. Are we still awesome after that? Uh, <laughs> do you think Nvidia and AMD can do something to fix shader compilation issues on PC? Maybe similar to how Nvidia has optimized settings for games in their GeForce Experience app, they can enable downloading pre-compiled shaders into the cache of a specific game. Alex, I've floated this before that I think it is on a technical level doable, but the logistics are intense. Um, per, per driver, per GPU, per game version, depending upon if the game has changed shaders in its most recent update and things like that, 
a lot of there's a lot of variables there and it doesn't take into account how how and far into the game and the collection of these shaders it is a it would be a monumental task but i do think there is some automated way of doing it um, there have been uh, nvidia has been focusing so much on ai that i almost feel like there's an ai way of sourcing this and an ai way of generating the data as in like you know automated play testing is something that has been a big focus of the last couple of years from a lot of developers um, ubisoft ea uh, and uh, nvidia themselves have been uh, trying to uh, how do you say this uh, be the vanguards of this evolution of using AI uh, to test games and uh, do a bunch of configurations. I think there's probably a way to do that, but it's so pie in the sky uh, that I think the immediate term future is making sure developers and publishers realize it's not okay to ship your games in this way uh, with where it doesn't do it. So it's, I would love for AMD, NVIDIA, Intel to have the means to do this, but at the moment, the problem is with the developer and the publisher. It would be nice to see actual games implement something like this already. You know, if it's going to be an issue just to allow it as, an, as a user option to sort of like just deal with an initial weight of some sort to ensure that you have a better first experience. Horizon Zero Dawn famously is the, the game that did that before shifting to a background compilation model. There's other games that have done this stuff before, I feel. I, I, I remember seeing things like this first time will take a long time kind of messages where they're doing stuff like that. Oh, the, uh, Forza Horizon 4, and you've maybe seen it in, it says, it says that the first time you load up the game. This may take a while, please wait. PC games for many years have had some issues with this first time experience, I feel. Like my biggest pet peeve was there was definitely some PC games where they try to start by like just dropping you immediately into the game in some sort of bombastic sequence before you even get to adjust your settings. And you're just like, ah, it's like trying to show cinematic. The game started in like 640 by 480. The settings are wrong. It's, it's, you know, that kind of stuff. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. Like, it's just, it's, uh, I feel like they've really got to consider like what the first time PC experience is. Cause it's really important. Uh, other things that I think just really quickly, just to add at the end of John's first time PC experience thing. I also think developers on PC definitely need to take in the second play experience a little bit better where they stop, they allow you to actually skip uh, the intro videos and, and for the love of God, do not have a press start to play button. Uh, I don't know, when did this start? Seriously, is this, a, is this a leftover from arcades? What is press start to play about? Like, what is that even? <laughs> I think it's the idea was in a lot of games, especially older ones, when you start the game up, it just runs through like an attract mode. It shows the title screen, then it shows demo gameplay. And it's just it's just the game being active until you actually pull up to the machine and then you press a button and then it goes into the game. Oh, and I think it, it's, I, it's I feel like it serves no purpose in modern gaming. It is for so most weird. modern games. It's kind of useless, especially on the PC. Yeah. I think I don't know. It's it's <laughs> yeah. a weird one. Yeah, but how do you stand on how do you stand on press F to pay respects, Alex? Big fan of press F to pay respects. You remember though, Alex, uh, IDOS Montreal actually did that with the Deus Ex games, where like at least a human revolution, where the console versions they had a it was actually a beautiful title screen. I remember seeing, uh, but on PC you didn't get that. It just goes straight into the menu, which is actually kind of what you would want on a PC game anyway. That's a so, Nixie's joint, you know. Yeah, That's a they Nixie's know what joint. Doing. Oh yeah, that, that's right. That was that was Nixon's, wasn't it? It was the PC version. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that worked out. Okay, final question. This one from Eric Benoit. 
if GTA 5 gets ported to the PlayStation 6 or the Xbox Series 2X. <laughs> I would call it the Xbox Series XL. Exactly. Would you cover it or is quote unquote enough enough, John? I think we'd have to cover it. Actually, at that point, it, yeah. it would just be funny that you almost couldn't not cover it. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, right. It just gets <laughs> ridiculous. What is the game we've covered the most, though? I think I mean GTA is up there because we have looked at it a lot. But I mean, I feel like Rise of the Tomb Raider still holds a Rise lot of records. Rise of the Tomb Raider. Rise of the Tomb Raider. Yeah, Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven. Oh, yeah. Obviously, Witcher, Witcher. Witcher three. We did a ton. I mean, this is the thing where it's almost digital foundry as a service where we're talking about you know is this patch any good? Does it resolve outstanding issues? So yeah, that does kind of warrant the coverage. But here it's kind of like GTA Five is a mature game and um, it's just getting new ports all the time. I suspect these ports will continue so long as there's new consoles. But with that said, they didn't do um, Xbox One X or PS4 Pro versions. And they didn't do a Switch version. Yeah, which I actually right. find slightly baffling because I suspect it would have <laughs> sold a lot of copies. Gangbusters. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, Xbox Series 2X. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they do have a bit of a naming issue there, don't they? I, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like they're trying to take the Apple approach now, where it's just always going to be the Xbox Series X and S, and possibly just upgrade from there. But whether or not that, they might also reach the point like, wait, this doesn't actually work in the console space, and then have to change it anyway. But, I mean, the iPad now is just the iPad, right? But yeah. I guess on their phones... And it's just the number of the year, right? Yeah, like something like that. I don't know. We'll see right? what they do. Yeah. It is okay. a weird naming thing they've ended up with, but I feel like they can make Xbox Series whatever they want at this point. That's it. That's the show. That's the final question. Please do like, subscribe, share if you enjoyed the content. Uh, ring the bell for instant. Uh, potentially instant. Um, we can't make any guarantees there. Notifications... Uh, DF supporter program get involved join our amazing community get tons of early access uh, last week we uh, dropped the awesome uh, Grand, to- Grand Turismo Grand Turismo uh, retro episode it's, it's, it's doing uh, it's huge uh, positive reception to that so yes join us tons going on there uh, but that's it that's it for our 54th episode I guess we'll see you in the 55th <laughs>